0: Welcome to premium cash flow, real estate investing podcast with Sakar Kali during this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a business professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host Sakar Kali owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights Here's your host, Sakar Cowley.
1: Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, today I have the pleasure of welcoming Jared Stern with SNS Management. Welcome to the uh, podcast show, uh, Jared. Thank you for taking time today.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to share my story with your audience and uh, see what kind of value I can provide
1: incredible so Jared Jared has a very awesome story wherein he started as a maintenance technician 15 years ago uh, you know during his residential uh, property experiences and slowly uh, but surely he has la- you know sort of leaped that ladder and uh, you know got into bigger better properties from single properties to you know duplexes triplexes uh, today they own a lot bigger portfolio of multiple apartment uh, units uh, they portfolio right now in Cincinnati, Ohio is well about $30 million worth of assets. So it is an incredible growth and I'm excited to hear about his journey. So in your words, Jared, kind of give us some background about, you know, how did your journey started and you know, where you are at with your company today?
2: Yeah, sure thing. Thanks. Um, I think our journey is a little bit unique for where we're at currently. So a lot of the multifamily syndicators that I speak with are those who come from an institutional background. They'll uh, work at a large firm or potentially have an MBA and see an opportunity in real estate investment. Uh, My background, my partner's background is more of a organic grassroots uh, growth. So Mm -hmm. we started as a maintenance technician. What that means is I was the guy out there fixing toilets, servicing rental properties for a local landlord in the Cincinnati Ohio market. I used that skill set um, to with my brother to start a construction company just doing kitchens, bathrooms, additions for what started to be friends and family and grew into others. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we took that money, saved it up, and when the real estate market crashed in 2008, we kind of looked around and said, "Look how inexpensive these houses are. Why not use the money we've saved up to start buying those and while our money, there wasn't a lot of money, we did substitute our lack of capital with our sweat equity and skill set in construction. So we were buying the inexpensive house, fixing it up, uh, renting it out, stripping the equity and moving on to the next one. And that went from single families to duplexes, to fours, to tens, to forties, to hundreds. And so uh, I whizzed through 15 years there, but that is how we have gotten to this point is just kind of, Doing the same model that we started with is forcing appreciation through our background in construction, and then stripping the equity to grow the company. And so the the model really hasn't changed. It's just grown exponentially.
1: Incredible, incredible. And, and that. thank you for sharing that, Jared. And, and the nice thing about that story also, Jared, is that you get to experience, you know, what the work is about on the ground and see what it takes to kind of do the work. I mean, see the vintage of the buildings and stuff like that. And your point about Uh, someone coming from a private equity background or a professional MBA and things like that, they are more, you know, investment driven in terms of the numbers, the professional uh, sort of underwriting and kind of seeing the yield and the delta and things like that, right? But uh, I can completely relate to your story where, you know, as uh, viewers may recall, I have a strong uh, single family background into vintage property and, uh, uh, you know, doing all the distressed repositions and, uh, you know, pretty much renting them uh, one house at a time and kind of scaling up the portfolio so I I totally understand where you're coming from Uh, can I give us a sense uh, Jared about you know, when you started doing this, when was that, uh, sort of belief came to you that, uh, yes, I'm doing this, but I can see sort of the higher or the bigger picture, uh, of building a portfolio and kind of, uh, taking this from, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, path where you are a maintenance person, but you want to be a, uh, investor. What, what was that a light bulb moment like?
2: I don't remember. Um, uh-huh. That's the honest answer. So, uh, you know, as you gave in my background, it's been 15 years, but if anyone is watching this on, on video, I I'm, I'm only 30 now. So I bought my first property in 2018. Awesome. If you're doing the math, that means I bought my first one when I was 18.
1: Sure. And so,
2: um, I, I don't remember a specific moment, but sure. I was a maintenance technician while I was in high school mm-hmm. and something I do remember that will potentially like, a somewhat answer your story is my senior year of high school, my English teacher made us write letters to ourselves that would she would deliver 12 months later. So like awesome. on our graduation. And in that letter, I, I am not a writer by any means. And in that letter, all I wrote was, if you don't own five houses by now, you suck. And so... <laughs> So at some point, I guess in high school, I decided I wanted to be a landlord and I wanted to own rental properties. And I'm guessing it was just because I had worked in the industry as a maintenance technician. I understood it. And so I also understood being where the top of the food chain in that industry is. And it's at at the ownership level.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Boy, I am super pumped because you are a young superstar. I mean, uh, wow. You bought at such an early age and you are just at 30 now with so many units and such a big portfolio with full management company and so many apartments, uh, units under your management. So definitely kudos to you, you know. Uh, So Jared, uh, explain us like some of your um, you know, prior experiences like, for example, you were fixing up the houses, you know, the vintage uh, and things like that. Uh, you mentioned the word about equity stripping, which essentially means that you're probably refinancing and using the proceeds to, you know, go to bigger and better, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, units and things like that. So, kind of give us a sense of like today you are, um, you know, as you described, SNS management uh, with uh, three, uh, you know, two of your other partners. So, how did your group? group? group came about and what were your like early experiences like when you were fixing up the houses and things like that?
2: Okay. Well it's come a long way. So it started with just me and my brother. Um, Mm -hmm. So we've always we were both maintenance techs for the same local landlord. And -hmm. then we both went out and started our construction company together. Um, and then both started this real estate company together, and we built that to about uh, 25 units on our own, mm-hmm. and realized there was we did have a weakness. So like it was sure. the uh, back end of the business, and um, and so what we did was we started looking at ways to uh, mitigate that or help us in that weakness, and we found our third partner at that time, and his name is Coleman. Sure. Uh, Holman came on. He has a master's degree in accounting from BYU. He worked at larger firm, you know, multi-billion-dollar real estate firms, doing their investor reporting as well as some of their analysis. And so, we brought him on as an equity partner, and have been growing ever since because mm-hmm. uh, we, we complement each other well. And sure. so that's been great. But as far as the early experiences that you ask about. Um, Uh, It was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a lot of fun working with my brother every day. Just, uh, it was similar to our childhood, like building tree houses, you know, you go Mm -hmm. go into these houses, work together, see something, Mm -hmm. go from, you know, a piece of junk to a great uh, place to live. Mm -hmm. So a lot of fun there. And, um, as far as stripping the equity goes and early experiences, I'll never forget it. It was, we had to buy our first six houses cash because as I told you in the beginning of our stories, it was 2008 lending climate wasn't, sure. very good. I was 18 years old. Nobody wanted to lend to a one, you know, a, uh, a hopeful real estate investor who was sure. 18 years old. So we did our first six cash. And then after maybe that was two, it took us two years to get to six, I think. And, uh, and at that point we found a bank that would give us a blanket cash out refinance at 60% loan to value.
1: Wow! And I forget
2: that day because the check that came off of that refinance from a you know f- fully uh, cash purchase portfolio was like, oh my gosh, this works! You know, sure. what we've mm-hmm. been doing for two years and not getting paid for is working. And so then we took that you know nice size check and and just bought six more and just sure, uh, sure. kept it kept it rolling. So that that uh that was our early experiences and that's kind of how our partnership came to be.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Now you described your uh, other partner, uh, which is Coleman, you said. Uh, did you meet him uh, uh, or you know him uh, already? Uh, was he like a family friend and things like that? Because trying to establish and finding out that professional uh, sort of person and, uh, you know, filling that key gap. What what was that like? Was that through like maybe perhaps a real estate RIA or a family friend? How, how did that come about?
2: Uh, No, we did not know uh, Coleman. So we met him at a real estate networking group that I actually put together. It was just a a lunch with, I think, uh, eight to 10 people in the uh, Cincinnati market. And at the time, Coleman was working at a large firm um, that does um, real estate investment, but he didn't own any of his own. But he um, really, we got along with Coleman well. And one thing he asked was, I like how you guys run your company. I would like to learn how to manage properties. Could I work for you for free to Mm -hmm. soak up some knowledge and, and then go do my own thing. And after about a year of us working together, we realized this was a really good fit and Mm -hmm. rather than him work for free or work for a salary at the time, we just didn't have the revenue to support a salary that Coleman would demand. And so we, uh, struck an equity balance that we were really happy with. And and so it was just his initiative to learn the industry Mm -hmm. and his offer to work for free. And then his value that he provided to the company that, you know, we we saw as a huge value and then have just grown on since then. So that's been, you know, many years now.
1: Awesome. Awesome. That's, that's, that's incredible uh, sort of marriage, so to speak. And, you know, three partners coming together, and different strengths and kind of moving the company forward. Now, uh, now, if you can, uh, Jared, uh, uh, give us a quick snapshot of uh, who leads which uh, area in your company, like, you know, you are three partners, obviously, you know, with the scale of company that you have. Uh, Can you maybe tell us like who leads which uh, size of the business now?
2: yeah I mean the quickest, easiest way to explain it would be uh, those familiar with corporate structure would I would be CEO my brother is c o o and then my partner Coleman is cFO sure and so what that really means to us uh, the titles are great, but what it means is I push the company forward, my brother is uh, cleans up the mess that that creates, so every time you grow, it creates complexity, and then he sure. tries to simplify that down through systems and processes, and then my partner Coleman uh handles the back end of the business and handles the money
1: so that's kind
2: of how we delegate those responsibilities at at a very summarized
1: level Sure, sure, sure. And um, uh, drilling a little bit further there, Jared, uh, how is that uh, organized in terms of your org chart? Like, uh, you know, you have your own property management company and things like that. So I would assume that obviously is your brother's responsibility as far as operations fall and things like that. Uh, What does that structure look like uh, in terms of, uh, you know, within the property management, like uh, how much staff you have or perhaps uh, if there are any, uh, you know, freelancers or W2 uh, or perhaps any subcontractors that kind of thing
2: yeah and as as you'll know, even though we have 450 units that's still relatively small and so org charts are important and knowing your responsibilities are important but at our size uh, as an owner you wear multiple hats and so
1: sure.
2: mm-hmm. um, we do our best to, to strike that balance and strike that organizational chart, but we all jump in where it is needed. Um, yes, my brother oversees the operations. So he's kind of at the top of that property management, but also Coleman, as CFO, oversees a lot of that too. He's watching the, um, the rents and the revenues and all of those things and how to uh, project that out and create budgets and those types of things. Um, I'm looking at which properties are we buying in the future, which, which properties do we want to manage since we manage sure. our own. So we're all collaborating, but below the ownership level, it's a pretty standard org chart. There's property managers, uh, that oversee for us. It's usually about a 300 unit clump. So that mm-hmm. could be 300 units made up of four properties. It could be 300 units made up of 10 properties. It's, it's more based on geographical locations and how close they are. Mm-hmm. 300 units are serviced by one property manager, uh, one leasing agent two maintenance and one cleaner. So that's kind of the organizational chart that we can repeat as we scale
1: i see i see and, and i assume your company is now looking to purchase more similar properties uh as 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 you grow is that would that be a correct statement uh
2: we are looking to purchase more and i would say similar yes but larger for sure so mm-hmm. um our background was we did a lot with our own capital up until a few years ago. And then we've ventured into the syndication model, which has opened up opportunities to buy slightly larger. And that's very intentional because we see the operational efficiency of larger, the uh, economies of scale of larger. And so now we're looking at, uh, a hundred to 300 unit apartment communities here in the Cincinnati market. And we do that by raising money from passive investors and, uh, so similar, but yes, definitely scaling up on the on the size of the, the asset.
1: Sure. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And, and Jared, um, explain us like, you know, obviously you shared that uh, property management gives you an edge in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's the ease of operations or the cost control and things like that. Uh, can you describe um, in your words in terms of like, you know, what is it like in terms of having the control and, um, you know, using your property management to see that, yes, you, you have a lot more advantage over other operators? Uh, can you maybe break it down how you see it through your own eyes?
2: Yeah, and uh, I have a great story for that. Because when we hit about 40 units, it got to a point where we thought, this is getting pretty challenging. We're, we're going to bring on third-party management to oversee the, the management arm of our company. We'll focus on construction and acquisitions. And how we decided to approach that was from the perspective of the resident or tenant um, because ultimately, they are our customers. And so what we did was we, we looked in our market in Cincinnati, Ohio at listings of similar properties mm-hmm. And uh, we called them to Torum, like we were going to rent them. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to see kind of boots on the ground. How were management companies handling similar assets? Were they returning calls to tenants? Were they following fair housing laws during showings? Were they being responsive? What were their minimum requirements? Those types of things from the perspective of the customer. Sure. And the results were awful. And so what... What happened there was the results were so bad, we were not comfortable giving up the very important role of property management of our investments and assets to these companies that were out there servicing them. And at that point, we made the decision to vertically integrate, build out our management company, build the systems around uh, our portfolio that we wanted to see and I've always said this, is property management is the least fun, most important part of the investment. Like it can it can make a okay deal into a great one. It could take a great deal and run it into the ground. And so I like having that control because I saw how it is mismanaged. And, and we made that decision a long time ago to vertically integrate and support our investments through the operations. And I, I highlight to our investors or anyone we talk to is what we're good at as a company. Mm-hmm. Is being operators. And sure. so, like, that creates the success that we've had is, is operationally making these properties as efficient as we possibly can. And so, I'm really glad, you know, many years ago we made that decision to vertically integrate because forcing the pre- appreciation, controlling the value of your investment is so incredibly profitable, but also very uh, useful when it comes to the investment arm of the business.
1: Sure, sure. No, I totally agree with you. And and, and I mean, you know, the culture, the, you know, sort of the experience you give out to your, uh, you know, prospective customers, or perhaps even your existing tenants and things like that. It goes a long way. And I think, once you have a property management in house uh, like you know i like i shared with you before that we we have the similar style we do all our management internal but but just the whole culture the experience is very different that you are in a more customer service mode uh, trying to help people rather than just a typical management company who probably doesn't have that much attachment uh, towards uh, you, you know just helping the customers there even a lot of times as you know the employees are just there clocking in and out and not paying that much attention to uh, you know all the different legs of the business right um, so good uh, so jared moving on uh, how was your first uh, sort of syndication? Like, can you maybe kind of give us a sense of, you know, how many units, uh, you know, deals, uh, like, you know, sort of the financials and how you raise the money and things like that?
2: Sure. Yeah. The first one um, was 93 units uh, and Cincinnati, Ohio, 93 units. I found the deal through cold calling. So in Cincinnati, Ohio, specifically Hamilton County, uh, all rental property owners of, I believe, four or more units have to register to their rental property. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, some of the older landlords or mom or pop running uh, businesses will write down their. When they do that, they'll write down their personal phone number. Sure. Uh, registration form, which is public record. Mm-hmm. So I will take that data, put it into a spreadsheet, and I at the time I was cold calling those owners to Interesting. see. Interesting. No. Mm-hmm. So, and so this was a property I knew I liked and I had called him for three years. And finally this, I don't know, 37, three years, every single month. So on the 37th month, uh, he was ready to sell. We, we purchased that property for 2.2 $2 million. Um, which wow. <laughs> price was a really good price, but this was a very heavy lift on a, uh, um, renovation and value sure. add. Mm-hmm. Um, he had no financials whatsoever, none. Mm-hmm. Um, no tax returns. Um I wow. think, he, I think he was dodging the uh you know the the government on that one. So sure. uh we had to find a lender who was comfortable with that. And so what we ended up doing was going to a lender that had lent to us on flipping of houses when we were doing construction and, and just trying to make some extra capital. And so they knew we could handle the the workload. They lent to us, we did the property, um it uh, after two years we had repositioned it and you know, complete turnaround. We got thank you letters from the chief of police, and uh, the city was very grateful for what we had done. The property actually had a successful exit recently um, by exit, I mean refinance. The property appraised at 5.2 million. We were able to strip out the equity, same sure. business mm-hmm. model, uh, and then we take that and we roll it into the next deal. And so, taking a property that was beat down purchased at uh in the two millions and then and then refinanced in evaluation of five is very very fulfilling so from not only financially fulfilling but fulfilling for the impact it had on the community
1: sure 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 no and 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 that's an incredible story actually and and it's very interesting we can kind of mill it in several ways uh, as I listen to you, Jared, that uh, here you are as an experienced operator, uh, you know, as a technician who has seen, uh, you know, like once you kind of walk through the building, you, you'll understand the scope of work and the seriousness that some of these heavier lift assets it can take, right? But then, you know, you have some other newbies who will come, hey, you know, I have some mentor behind my back. I think I can do it. And... They all they know is uh, you know yes it needs a heavier lift and perhaps you, you know they'll have some property condition assessments and stuff but this is where the experience comes in is the exact uh, uh, you know the figures that hey the plumbing the electric the general interior conditions whether it's roofing siding or all of that that practical experience can you maybe talk about. Uh, specifically like you know what were some of the heavier uh, lift items you did and you know why it was the right fit for you and not perhaps someone else
2: yeah i think it's because you can see through the scary things so like this property i walked up to it and i can see you know yes it has broken windows yes the resident base is really really rough Mm -hmm. and but i'm looking at it and i'm like this thing has great bones sure and so to those mechanical aspects that you speak of, you know, the, the exterior facade was brick. Uh, the roofs had been replaced, but, um, you know,
1: Band-Aids or (laughs) Band-Aids.
2: Yeah. Band-Aids or Band-Aids, but we, uh, we, we could see exactly what it needed and I could see that it could be brought back. And really the, the core problem was the management of the asset, not the asset itself. And so, Um, doing doing the when I say heavy lift it was replacing all the windows doing the parking lots doing all of the interior cosmetics which would be flooring walls you know cabinets bathrooms those types of things but this is all stuff we've done for many many years and so just instead of doing one of them you're doing 93 of them and so um you know we were able to turn that around pretty quickly and, and make a really big impact but uh Part of that, the, part of the syndication, the first syndication that I didn't answer is uh, how, how we raised the capital. And so sure. um, I had a close friend who I had met and said, If you ever plan to raise money, I would be interested. And so I put together the marketing package, planning to raise from lots of investors, and I sent it to him and I said, I'd like your feedback before I put this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me your feedback. And ultimately, his answer was, If you put in half the money, I'll put in the rest. And so oh. <laughs> the first syndication was, uh, was not, while it was a legitimate syndication, it wasn't very, uh, uh, it, it didn't have the same stressors of raising money from large groups sure. from because mm-hmm. he, he also saw the opportunity in it and scooped it up and took it all. So sure. Um, sure. later we ended up doing more syndications where we have lots of investors in as a pool, but that was the first official syndication and did have a successful exit. So it's a great story.
1: Sure, sure. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Can you maybe describe, Jared, like, what were some of the, uh, like, sort of the intricate details about the rehab, whether it was exterior, interior, like, you know, could, could you maybe go into some more detail on that? Um, I guess so.
2: Interior cosmetic upgrades is something we do on all of our properties. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's kind of our bread and butter. Um, so was
1: that mostly like replacement of doors, cabinets, uh, perhaps changing the uh, entire bathrooms? Was it was it that dramatic? Yes,
2: yeah. And so that that for us, I mean, we've gotten it down to a science. The first indication obviously was a learning process. We were sure. probably pretty good at it, but now where we're at is very very good. So we we. Are pretty heavy on analytics, tracking KPIs, and I know now that um, our typical turnover with a full cosmetic, which would be kitchen, bathroom, flooring, walls, doors, hardware, light fixtures, is averaging about two point four days for a five man crew. And so, like we know that, we know what that cost would be, and then we can project it out onto future projects. Um, but some something that I've learned, like I guess a a, a tip you didn't ask, but the uh, you know we we install vinyl uh, life-proof flooring in all of our apartments and all sure. the living spaces mm-hmm. rather than carpet. And so we're, we're renovating to own these assets for long-term. And so mm-hmm. when we go in, we're, we're doing everything that we can for the long-term operation of these assets, because we're not just the construction company, but we're the construction company and the owner. Sure. And so we're, uh, our scope of work caters to pre- preventative maintenance and long-term you know, suppression of capital expenditures.
1: Sure, sure, sure. That that makes uh, that makes complete sense. Uh, and and um, how was the exterior improvements? Was it just uh, you know parking lots, any building paintings and things like that, or was it any dedicated leasing office or uh, any landscaping that you had to spruce up uh, uh, about that, uh, Jerry?
2: Yeah, there was a leasing office. They The previous ownership was using it as a storage room for all the old mattresses that come <laughs> up of the dumpsters. So we uh, cleaned that up and converted it back into a leasing office. Um, we did do some of the roofs. Some had already been done in an insurance claim. I'd say one of the larger projects that operationally was challenging was replacing the 480 windows. You know, wow. Mm-hmm. That was subcontracted out, but the logistics of entering into 93 apartments, ripping out their windows and reinstalling new windows it, is a challenge in itself. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a big uh, exterior upgrade and made a huge improvement on the curb appeal. Cause these were 1970s single pane aluminum windows. Sure. And uh, we did do parking lots. They were just pothole ridden. We ripped them out and replaced them, uh, re-striped them. Uh, landscaping upgrade was pretty typical, just, mm-hmm where it was mud, we planted grass, where there should be bushes, we put mulch in bushes, nothing <laughs> extravagant. This is sure. absolutely a, a C-class property. And so one of the things that we've learned through that organic growth and through our background in construction is not to over improve too. So we sure. know what our customer wants and what they demand and what reaps uh, higher rents and what doesn't. And sure. So you know we're not putting in garden beds full of beautiful flowers because it does not go the rents at all in this product sure so, um yeah, that, that I guess that kind of highlights the exterior upgrades. Did I did I answer your question? You,
1: you did, you did, you did. And, and I guess one piece we can talk about also, Jared. Here is that uh, if there was any other newbie, uh, you know, doing uh, such a large, uh, you know, reposition, would you would you think that they would be successful, or What, what is your take on some of these uh, heavy lift projects? Perhaps uh, uh, you know some newer syndicators doing some of these things.
2: It depends. So like, I I think it it depends. Like you could, someone who is new, but, and even lacks the experience that we were fortunate to have, can figure it out if they have the drive and motivation, but by no means was it easy. Sure. Um, And so there was really challenging days. I mean, in the first month, I was definitely questioning what we had done, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, because we had in the first month, we had two overdoses from heroin. We had a fire in the building. Oh Um, boy. (laughs) Like there was, there was times where you're, you feel overwhelmed, but no, I I think it all depends on the person. Um, I don't think you need any certain set of experiences or any certain background or degree or anything to, to accomplish challenging things, but you hmm. need motivation and mindset that you're going to push through and figure out the solution. And so I think any newbie could do it, but I, I don't want to mislead and say it, it's easy for any newbie to do it.
1: Sure. 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 And that's where the, you know, on the ground experience comes in. Uh, so I, I couldn't, you know, agree with you there, Jared. Now, uh, Talking about you know your company growth, Jared, and how you have scaled up, uh, you know different times call for different expertise and different uh, level of resources and things like that. I mean, you know, technically we call them like inflection points, uh, you know, of your company. Uh, Can you maybe share as to, you know, how things have changed? Like when you started, you stated that yes, you brought in your partners and things like that. But now as you're growing and raising, uh, you know, more capital to perhaps do more bigger deals, uh, what are some of the things that have changed in your journey?
2: Um, well, I think every day is, there's something changing just as you're running a business, the speed of which business moves right now, like you, constantly something is changing, a new policy or procedure. And so minor tweaks are always being made. But those big inflection points that you refer to, definitely switching from using our own capital to raising money from investors was a big change in our business. But I would also, I guess, even say it, it is a completely additional business it is a whole nother arm of our business so it's not just if it's not just if you're good at renovations and good at property management you should be raising money from other people because it is a completely separate business that uh, is an arm of what we have built as a portfolio but you have to have different skill sets like my partner you know he has a institutional background in reporting to investors and so Uh, If I were to have tried to take that on with my construction background, you know, I would have been producing a Microsoft Word document that said, we did great, here's your check. And maybe I could have made some money, but uh, accredited investors demand a higher level of reporting and deserve a higher level of reporting. And so an inflection point is definitely switching to add on that additional arm of our business because it is completely separate. It is a whole new business
1: sure sure now switching the discussion to uh you know sort of the purchase of newer assets where the market is um you know like what sort of assets you are targeting and things like that um you know obviously we're going through pandemic as well uh, what are some of the things you're looking in your newer acquisitions are you uh like uh like in terms of like let's say the returns and things like that uh how is how are you shaping up your underwriting to kind of give the projected returns? What are you looking for? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I would say our business has has been very similar all the way through. And so even now, as we're growing, we're looking at larger assets, but it's the same model, right? Mm-hmm. So something that needs a, a value add, forced appreciation through construction. And so that That is what we're still looking for. We're looking for larger assets. As far as a return goes, um, we look in in the range of like 10 to 15% cash on cash return annualized. Mm -hmm. We do typically hold longer than most uh, syndication sponsors. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we're we're long-term buy and hold investors and long-term in the syndication model for us means 10 years. Sure. So what that does and the reason we focus on 10 years is because it helps us fall back on our strengths and hedge any any kind of uh, downside. So, we we things like pandemic or economic recessions, we can hedge against those downsides by falling back on our ability to operate. And so, we want ten years, and we want well structured debt for those mm-hmm. ten years to be able to to handle that. And so, that's what we look for moving forward.
1: I see. Now, um, speaking of the pandemic and all the different stresses we have had on renters, like some have lost jobs or perhaps reduced hours and things like that. Uh, So when you're looking at new assets, Jared, can you maybe share uh, what are your thoughts on some of the problems we are seeing in the uh, sort of the gross monthly collections? And, you know, obviously we know that the uh, net operating income of the properties are going to sort of uh, be you know a little choppy, if that's the right word. Uh, how are you safeguarding yourself in terms of how you are going to evaluate some of these uh, issues that have come up now?
2: We're very fortunate that here in the Cincinnati market, and really the mid Midwest, I haven't uh, in the multifamily space. We haven't seen too much of an issue. So mm-hmm. at the beginning of the pandemic, I was definitely concerned and wondering, you know, how payments will be made. <coughs> Obviously, time will tell um, as different um, financial aid and things dry up, and we'll see where that all plays out. But um, collections have been very strong in our market. Mm-hmm now as far as how do you how do you mitigate risk based on on the pandemic or any kind of recession what we do is in the offer which we're making right now if we get something under contract we will have a collections contingency in there mm-hmm. and so w- we're confident in our ability to operate uh, through this pandemic, but one of our concerns is can the current ownership maintain the operations they have right now through sure. the contract and how will that impact financing and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. And so we'll
2: add in a collections contingency that we might not have had before the pandemic, just to say, here's where you're at. You have to maintain it. If you don't, we're going to, you know, obviously renegotiate or reevaluate this, this, this uh, project.
1: So that's awesome. one way
2: we've been changing it.
1: Awesome. Now, uh, Jared, speaking of all your different partners and things like that, uh, how are you looking for bigger projects moving forward? Are you looking for like sort of a B plus asset or are you perhaps looking for other markets? Can you maybe uh, share what what are some of the things you're looking forward to in the midterm to perhaps later down the year or perhaps next year?
2: Yeah, same, same type of projects, kind of C to B class in the 1960s to 1990s assets, larger. So 100 plus units is what we're acquiring. And they're really challenging to find right now. But the good thing is, is the life that I enjoy and the life that I desire is supported by the um, by the investments that I've already made thus far. So I don't have to purchase unless um, unless I find something that is a good acquisition. We're definitely not a firm that is buying for the sake of buying. Mm. Um, if it takes us two years, it takes us two years. If it's next month, that's great too. But we're just looking for good opportunities that fall within our range of uh, expertise. And sure. so um, it would be in the Cincinnati market. I will tell you a story. when we When we shifted to the syndication model, uh, we reached out to all of the people we thought would be interested in investing and asked them what they would lo- what they were looking for. About 50-50 split. Some said cash flow, just give me yield. The other side said wealth preservation and the potential for growth. Um, and so what we did was we know Cincinnati market really well. It's a very strong cash flow market. And at the time I said, like, there's not a lot of potential for growth. Um, I'm kind of changing my opinion on that, but um, what we did was we started looking at other markets that would give us the potential for growth through Mm -hmm. economic fundamentals. And you know, my, my brother who has a background in construction, his actual formal degree is real estate economics. And so we Mm -hmm. started looking at these other markets and we decided on Atlanta, Georgia. And so we Mm -hmm. said, we've built what we did in Cincinnati. Let's go do the same thing in Atlanta, Georgia, the way we know how to do it is boots on the ground. So we Mm -hmm. moved there. Um, So we up and moved and moved to Georgia. And we're trying to buy large apartment communities there. And it taught us a lot because it didn't work. And so we were there for two years and it taught us that what we look for as investors is consistent, predictable cash flow, not speculative investing. And while I believe heavily in the real, in the uh, economic fundamentals of Atlanta, people believed in them and were willing to pay for them to an extent that we were not. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it taught us a lot about what we look for as investors, and and we were chased. We were trying to satisfy our investor pools once, but it really wasn't what we were good at. And so, moving forward, I have a very strict focus on the Cincinnati, Ohio market, where we have full control and in a competitive advantage because this is where we were born and raised, and have spent you know 15 years in the industry. Um, and then I'm just going to do the same thing we've always done look for properties that need value-add components through property management and construction and just do it at a larger scale.
1: Sure, sure. Thank you for that clarification. Now, some of the strengths also sometimes uh, become your hindrances as well. And where I'm referring to, Jared, is that uh, you know, the story that you shared now, right, that uh, Atlanta Market, yourself, uh, you know, owner and operator, and perhaps the model that perhaps belongs there is, you know, lower cap rates, high returns, and, you know, probably, um, you know, a lot more on the speculative side, right? So one can always argue that, hey, uh, this is where this is a growth market, and it's not a, a, you know, typical cash flowing market, right? So are you perhaps uh, proposing, uh, Jared, that um, you more so like the cash flowing markets, and perhaps not that much the High growth, low cap rate type of markets, and trying to pay the market rate, and you know, going up in the best and final, and going up and up in your offer price, so that you know, it it almost starts to get speculative. Uh, are you maybe indicating along those lines, uh, Jared?
2: Yes, I mean, as an investor, I like consistent, predictable cash flow, and I think all investing has some level of speculation, right? So we we rely on our skill sets and our experience to try to project out 10 years. To some degree, that is guessing and that is speculative in nature. But when you can reduce the amount of speculation that you're uh, investing on, that's when I'm most comfortable. And so I I tend to gravitate towards that consistent, predictable cash flow. And Cincinnati is a great market for it. We were just out chasing greener grass in Atlanta and realized we never bought anything in two years. We never bought a single thing. And we realized it was because it wasn't a fit for us. So you're right, you know, it would just not, not fit for us. Not that it won't work, not that people who buy in line are wrong. It's just not a fit for our investment appetite.
1: Incredible. Thank you for those insights, Jared. Uh, please share with the listeners like, uh, you know, how they can kind of find you and perhaps learn more about your company and everything.
2: Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned SNS Management. That is our management company. But um, as I said, raising capital is kind of a completely separate business. We do that under SNS Capital Group. So that's three letters like Sam, Nancy, Sam, or Sturm, Nelson, Sturm. Uh, And snscapitalgroup.com is our website. And there's a a link there that if you just click contact us, we'll be able to get your email. And if you wanna talk to me, you can uh, put attention to Jared and and I'll be sure to uh, respond and get back to anybody who has any additional questions about our company.
1: Incredible. Thank you for all your insights, uh, Jared. It's been a pleasure knowing you and uh, knowing the growth of your company. Uh, I hope we can, uh, you know, regroup again in future and learn a lot more things uh, as well. So thank you for coming on.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for uh, having me and letting me share my story. Awesome.
0: Thanks for listening to premium cashflow, real estate investing podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates research articles and more we will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest